Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm really thrilled because only this morning I had the most wonderful conversation with our incredible colleague Migret Fletcher, who is a US-based dietitian based on the East Coast. Now Migret, uh, a lot of you will be already familiar with her work. She is a diabetes specialist, she's a mindful eating specialist, and she's also a motivational interviewing specialist. So she is a woman of many talents. And look, I'm so excited about what we had to talk about that I am putting this up and publishing it the same day as I did the interview. That's how excited I am about what this incredible woman has to share with us. Um, so those of you who know me, Gret, will understand that she is the co-founder or a co-founder, along with um, quite a few other influential and incredible people, of the, the Center for Mindful Eating. So as part of TCME, she's served many positions, including the 2013 to 2016 president. And those of you will, um, who are familiar with the work of TCME will know that um, our wonderful colleague, Marsha Hudnell, is our current president. Um, Migret is very involved in meditation practice and she's a practicing Buddhist. She is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator. So she's been involved in the clinical setting for over 18 years now. I would say it's probably well over 20 now. Uh, she's an incredible public speaker and has authored and co-authored a number of books. So her latest one is called The Core Concepts of Mindful Eating, Professional Edition. So for us dietitians, we're, we're so lucky because this one is just for us. And as Migret explains, what you'll hear her talking about is how she has woven to together the concepts of mindful eating and motivational interviewing, which you'll hear us talking about are perfect bedfellows. She's also the author of Discover Mindful Eating for Kids and co-authored Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes alongside Dr. Michelle May. Migret is just an incredible, inspiring, calm, insightful, oh my gosh, there's so many words that I can describe Migret. She's also become a beautiful and very dear friend of mine too. So I just really treasured this conversation and I hope you absolutely love it. So let's move on and hear from Migret. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Hello and welcome back to the next episode of The Mindful Dietitian. And today I have a super special treat for you all. I'm speaking with the absolutely fabulous Megret Fletcher, who is a US-based dietitian and diabetes specialist and mindful eating specialist as well. So, oh my gosh, Megret, I can't believe that we've finally been able to chat and um, it's just such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. 
So now there will be probably a mixture of people who are listening to this and some people will be really familiar with you and maybe others less so. So it might be, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about, let's go back, let's rewind and tell us a little bit about what brought you into dietetics in the first place. Um, let's see. That's a good question. I actually have a sad story as to what brought me into nutrition. I wanted to be a physiological neuropsychologist. Oh, wow. So those are the, I know. Those are the people that work with people after brain injury, typically. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a program. I got into the program of eight people. And in order to get track into the PhD program, you had to be number one or number two. And um, I was like number seven. Mm -hmm. So my major advisor said, hmm, so what's plan B for you? Because you're just, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get that PhD. You're not going to be able to pursue this, you know, because it's very competitive. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I, think I want to be a nutritionist. He goes, that'd be perfect because it's basically like a pre-med thing. So my junior year in college, I switched to um, nutrition. And because I was an avid skier, um, I skied all the time. And my senior year, I had a skiing accident and had to drop out of college mm -hmm. to have um, many, many surgeries to fix my legs after that. So when I, you know, explained to all my professors, hey, this is what's going on, I, I got done with a degree in nutrition, not a degree in dietetics, and actually worked as a health educator um, and worked underneath an HIV grant because in the 80s, HIV had just kind of emerged as this really interesting disease. Mm. So as I was working with HIV, I realized that I wasn't as wedded to health education as I thought I might be, and I really did want to become a dietitian. And so that was when I went back to school, completed all my prerequisites to be a dietitian, um, and then applied. And in the United States, we had a program, it doesn't exist anymore now, uh, that you could do a master's and um, have an experience. So I worked really hard, but I definitely, it was a journey that probably took me much longer than it took most other people to become a dietitian. Right, yeah. Yeah, and what was your first position after you graduated? Like many people who uh, come in to nutrition in the United States, I was a WIC dietitian, and um, I grew up in a, an ethnic community. I grew up in a Portuguese community. I was uh, probably one of four or five families that didn't speak Portuguese as their native language. So I really connected with um, Portuguese Latino community, and so then... Uh, I worked as a WIC dietitian in a, a very, very small community in Central Falls, Rhode Island, mm -hmm. uh, that was um, almost 100% Hispanic. And um, everybody was everyone's cousin or aunt or uncle or grandmother. And talk about loving. I mean, it was yeah. just loved the community, loved the Hispanic community, really wanted to speak Spanish. And um can speak food Spanish. <laughs> food Spanish. <laughs> so, so people can ask me and tell me what they had to eat and I can follow along pretty well. And then a lot of times they'll ask me a question like, what did you think about the movie? And I go, I have no idea what you said. 
Yeah, and your answer might be sangria. <laughs> <laughs> the only, I think the, I, the little Spanish I know, well, food Spanish would be sangria or churro. <laughs> yep, yep. So, yeah. so pretty funny. So that was kind of my uh, first job was working and really just having a very positive experience. Um, in that setting and, and with that community and mm. uh, yeah. enjoying it a lot. So what would you, what did you notice about people's sense of health and well-being purely from being in such a connected community? Um, the power of family, I think was the big one. We would have, you know, people's um, families would come in and, and the staff, they would feed the staff on, on Friday. Oh, that was wow. a big potluck. Um, and they were always feeding us, you know, and it was really uh, an expression of love. And these were oftentimes people that had very little, but they always felt like food was just so important. And, um, you know, I was a vegetarian and they would come in with these big pots of rice and chicken. And I wasn't a vegetarian when it was this Friday because they were going to make you eat it. And I would yeah. eat the beans and the rice and then they would say, yep, that's made with lard. And I'd be like, yep okay um, and and it's and it was it was good it was really um i love i love the experience so i just yeah. i really loved the connection do you think that the people in that community really benefited purely because of the connections that they had within the community in terms of their well-being because i and the reason i ask that is because now we're really beginning to understand um, truly holistic health rather than seeing health just as a physical parameter. Um, uh, it, it, it must be interesting for you to, to look back and think, gosh, you know, even, even when people were not necessarily enjoying optimal physical health, that the support that they had from their family and that sense of connectedness within their community must, must have um, made, you know, such a contribution to their well-being. I, I would say that it, it did from my perspective, um, I was very young though. So, mm -hmm. so being very young, you know, my perspective is very narrow, but I saw it as um, wholesome, supportive, um, caring, loving. I saw the meals as being relatively well balanced. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that we were, we were a health center and we all worked together um, and we fed everybody. And yeah. many times the patients were still there and we'd feed them. So um, that sense of being one, I think, was very strong. That experience really, no one was an outsider. Everyone was included. And I think that that, for me, resonates very deeply. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, um, when we look at, I'm not sure about your food and, and eating and nutrition guidelines in the U.S., but there's one, one aspect of our our guidelines here in Australia that feels glaringly, the omission of which feels glaringly obvious, which is, um, you know, the connectedness over food, which is present in, for example, the Brazilian guidelines, you know, the connectedness over food um, and family meals is very present and cultural, um, you know, cultural connectedness is very, very um, present in their guidelines and notably absent in ours. So that um, was, do, do you think that was quite formative for you in understanding how people come together to eat? 
Um, I do. And I think that um, my third book that I wrote, which was called Discover Mindful Eating for Kids, I talk about the culture and the culture that we have around food and eating. And for dietitians, you know, really um, encouraging that supportive, connected culture mm-hmm. not only improves health, health outcomes. We see children are scoring higher on school exams, less likely to develop eating disorders, less likely to use drugs. Um, so just exactly what we're saying is it's a very difficult um, parameter to study because of the complexity and those darn confounding variables, which seem to just really point us Mm -hmm. to something, but they can't really determine or say conclusively this caused this. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of direction around health, but we can't say anything's causal. And that I think is a little challenging. Mm, mm. Well, yes, of course, except when it comes to the pesky old um, factor of, of weight, which always seems to be alluded to as being causal, which, I mean, you know me well enough, Megret, to know that that absolutely drives me bananas, um, you know, when people are led to believe that that um, that something like our, um, our body mass is a causal um, variant for all kinds of health outcomes when we're, when when in reality, overall health and well-being is just so complex. Yes, it, it really is. And, you know, again, as we start looking at that really big nugget, that really big conundrum that you just eloquently said in a small sentence, and we go back and I was actually thinking about Hilda Birch, Dr. Birch. Do you remember The Gilded Cage way back mm. when, that book? Yeah. So I think that that book is going to be celebrating a 40 year anniversary. Oh, wow. I think it's 40. I think it's, it may even be 50 years old now. Mm. So, um, but I think it came back, I think it came out in the late seventies, early eighties. And I remember her really talking about this thin ideal. And I was, you know, just really unpacking the ramifications that the thin ideal has, not just on our health and how we define health, but also how we define beauty and how we define equality. Mm. So when you say it is a complex issue, it is a huge complex issue. And fast forward 40 years, I don't think we have really a clear understanding of how to unravel such a complex issue. So yeah, weight is, um, it's big. And, and I think you and I have had some side discussions talking about it's an outcome. Yes. So weight is an outcome and it's an outcome of more than just what you eat. It's more than just, uh, your exercise patterns. Uh, so when we start looking at it's an outcome of, you know, so many different factors Mm -hmm. and so many of them we can't control. Um, And so that's one of the things that I think, you know, is just really challenging. And when we look at weight, that message is so, um, it's so mixed up. Yeah. It's a very mixed up message. And um, its health is, like you said, it's complex, multifactorial. 
Um, health is an experience. It's not a number. Um, and it's, it's funny. Um, I'd love to share a little story uh, if, if that's okay. Please, please do. That'd be great. Thank you. So, um, so my story is, is the, the opposite. I had a, a period in my life where I was really struggling to maintain a weight. Um, I had a medical condition that didn't allow me to gain weight and actually I'd lost a lot of weight. Um, and I had lost a lot of weight unintended. Um, and it was, it was a very unpleasant experience to not be able to keep your weight up. And I remember being so angry when people would say to me, Oh my God, you lost so much weight. You look great. And I'm like, dude, it looks like the chemo's not working. So it's not a good look for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember the backlash, the anger that I felt. I felt so wretchedly ill. I just was so sick at this period of my life. And, you know, just was so sick. Mm-hmm. And to have people compliment me because I had lost weight. And I thought, are you looking at me? Mm-hmm. I, I'm losing my hair. I just, I was in a really, just a health crisis. And I was so surprised that that was the response people had. And I wanted to cry Mm. um, to, I just wanted to scream at them and go, this is not health at all. This is, this is illness. Um, But the good news is that has passed. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Yay. And and I don't have that problem anymore. Yeah. 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 And thank goodness. It's, it's interesting, um, you know, that, that when, that when um, the people around us and our culture, our culture in general, you know, when we're looking through that lens of the weight health um, connection, I suppose, then um, people find it really hard to step away from that and to be able to um, understand that we are so much more than a body, you know, so much more than our appearance. And, um, you know, when, when people around you are giving you compliments because of your appearance and you're feeling the absolute opposite. And I know some, one of my clients at the moment has dreadful hyperemesis. She's, um, she's now halfway through her pregnancy and it has not abated. She mm. is, um, she has not put on nearly as much weight as she um, need, needs to for, to maintain a you know, her own healthy body, her baby is just fine, thank goodness. Um, mm. But she is not, she really is not. And yet, you know, she she's having this same experience where people are complimenting her and saying, you know, how amazing she looks. And she said, I, she says, I'm not a violent person, but I just feel like punching them in the face <laughs> like that. And, and I think, oh my gosh, it's just, it's, it's, what it does is reflects the, the illness, I guess, of our culture. You know, that yes. we, that we, you know, that we're really not well as a culture. Yeah. And it goes back to Hilda Birch and that thin ideal and mm. really turning around and saying that, you know, in her work, she said this thin ideal drives people towards disordered eating yes. and towards anorexia. But the, the manifestations are kind of the ripple effect of that is the thin ideal also manifests itself in um, how we perceive beauty. Yes, And also, if we're struggling and we're spending all our time and attention trying to 
achieve or maintain or attain an unrealistic, unhealthy body weight, we're actually not pursuing the things that have value and meaning to us as a person. We're spending all our time worrying or calorie counting or blaming ourselves or really, you know, really fault finding within this amazing machine called the human body. And we're not using our talents uh, for the betterment of ourselves and our fellow humans because we're trapped in this thin ideal, this, this fiction that thin is better, thin yes. is healthy, and thin is beautiful. And mm-hmm. it's a fiction mm-hmm. um, that it, it's so hard to unpack. It's so hard to challenge ourselves mm-hmm. to do that. Um, mm-hmm. It really is. It really is because we don't, we don't only exist in isolation, do we? We exist within families and we exist within communities and a wider culture too. And unless we're able to, um, you know, ascertain a very strong, uh, unless we're able to retell that story in a very strong, consistent and persistent way with the support of the people in our community, um, it's it's not easy to break away from and I, and I suppose you and I both you know over over our years of practice have met many people who have found themselves entangled in that uh, you know in that web essentially of of body hatred and disconnection from from um, re- their relationship with with themselves and with their body it, it, and it's amazing what you just said so yes a hundred percent the the connection and how do we help our clients and our family and ourselves break out of that cycle and, and the, the weight stigma, which I think is oh, what you're yes. alluding to. Yeah. Um, you know, I just happened to have with me um, some wonderful um, research articles about the stress of the weight sig- stigma and how that really perpetuates um, kind of this obesity weight based um, cycle. It, it actually causes people to gain weight because it's so triggering. Mm. And, This uh, particular article, um, it's in Appetite, and uh, it was published in 2014. Uh, It's Weight Stigma is Stressful, Review of Evidence for the Cyclic Obesity Weight-Based Stigma Model. Fascinating reading. Um, So I I would encourage dietitians to learn more about weight stigma. And, you know, I have another article here. This one is um, by the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, The Ironic Effects of Weight Stigma. Mm -hmm. And that one was published, it looks like in 2013. So smart people uh, are really doing some wonderful work to help us unpack um, this, this conundrum, this nugget, this, this really big knot that I think you're alluding to. And for dietitians, it's a real problem. This yes. is not something, you know, that you're just seeing. It's not something that only I'm seeing. There's energy and effort and research and really good theories by very brilliant people that are helping us understand how, as a healthcare professional, we can be that support that you mentioned earlier, we can provide them with that springboard to start unpacking and dismantling Mm -hmm. the thin ideal and just start having my ideal, my ideal being person body. What is that? Just let the thin piece go. 
just take weight out of the equation and say, who am I if I'm not so trapped, if I'm not in this prison, this weight-biased prison? Mm-hmm. Who am I? And, and dietitians really have a valuable, important role of helping people move out of that self-imprisonment. Let's just let that marinate for a second because that was really powerful and an invitation, an invitation to each and every one of us to understand more about determinants of health Mm -hmm. and to understand our role in dismantling our own attitudes um, and then to support the people who have entrusted us to dismantle their own probably quite deeply held beliefs about bodies, their own, other people's, and how we can then also work with other providers as well. Um, because this is not a this is this is not your just your client or your patient's responsibility. We have to really work as a team, don't we, Megresh? All together. I I couldn't say that better. Mm-hmm. So thank you. It really does take a village, and it takes so much support. And I think there are some terrific uh, podcasters out there that are really helping clients dismantle and. Um, there are dietitians that are talking about their experience dismantling this um, this problem and how do we do that and you know they're moving they're they're moving stories about as professionals they're saying you know what I had I came into this profession and I didn't realize that um, it either created or reinforced some disordered eating patterns Mm. and I'm ready to tackle those. I'm ready to free myself from that, that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a, it's actually probably when people sign up for, for a dietetics degree in some ways, they're probably signing up for more than they expected in, in the sense of, um, you know, the invitation to, um, to, to engage in some insight-oriented conversations, um, which for some some people are, are very available and for others, not so much, unfortunately, depending on which course you take or, you know, what kind of teachers you have or which stream you choose to, to engage in. But um, um, you and I, you know, we, we share a complete love of mindfulness and... Uh, I'm wondering if you could step us through a little bit of your early days in mindfulness and then how it has informed your practice today. And and please don't leave out the fact that you started the Centre for Mindful Eating. So if you could step us through a little bit of, you know, your early practice and how it's come to be as it is today. Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful invitation. And I'm really grateful to share this story. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. You're welcome. Um, So I think I, my mom, I love dearly. um, I won't say that she was very religious, but um, she worked for the church for 25 years. And I won't say that uh, God was something that she put in your face, but um, her 
her faith um, and her belief in a higher power um, was pretty strong growing up. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, I want to believe, but it just didn't work for me. So I used to say um, I was 16 and I knew that I wasn't Christian, but I couldn't tell anybody. So it was kind of a little bit, I always feel like it's, it was, I was in the closet around my Buddhist practice. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and it was a very interesting thing. You know, I went to a religious school and I worked in a religious hospital and, you know, I kept trying really, really hard to, um, to follow along. And I, it, it finally, it came to a point where I had to just tell her that, um, and just kind of announced to my family, I'm Buddhist and I, and I, I'm not Christian. And I remember that moment they said, yeah, that's okay. Oh, great. And I, and I was like, yeah, really? I really worried about this a lot more than you guys did. They're like, yeah, we're good with it. <laughs> <laughs> We've known. We've known yeah. since you were two. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of, you can't really hide it, you know. Mm. You, you can't really hide this stuff. I'm like, all right. And then, you know, that process of kind of joining a, a Buddhist center and meditating and really allocating time and attention to really say, this is really what I want to learn about. Um, and, you know, I wasn't hiding the Buddhist books. I wasn't hiding the meditation practices. Um, all of a sudden it was kind of out in the open and the feedback that I got was, Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, how does that align or not align with your, uh, your childhood? And um, my family was very receptive. I got absolutely positively zero pushback on this. And so what I found was I, I'm a two-footer as a person. I don't wade into anything. I jump right in, both feet, usually a cannonball. Um, <laughs> Love it. I can actually imagine you like, visually doing a cannonball into this beautiful lake. <laughs> Right, and saying in a scream, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm not a <laughs> love it. That wasn't the quiet one, I was the loud one. Um, and so as I started meditating on a regular and consistent basis, um, I just kept seeing how connected it was, uh, to my job as a dietitian. And I and I would share with my clients, like could I share this with you? And they were riveted by it. And I mean, like hung on my every word, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing stuff. Um, and it was so strong. I said, I really want to kind of figure out a way to do this because I just feel like this is the right way. And so I was um, at work and um, I was told that I couldn't do any more projects and I had to sit quietly at my desk if my patient didn't show. So I said, okay, I won't do anything else. I'll just sit quietly at my desk. And we had internet then at work. And, um, so I looked up and I found this gentleman, Fred Burgraff, and he had written about mindful eating. And I said, Hey, I think we should use this stuff that you've written and, and adapt it for dietitians. And he said, okay, that'd be a good idea. And so I reached out to about 18 different dietitians and about uh, 12 mindful eating um, people that were mindfulness experts and said, I've written this book. It's about, about activities. Uh, could you review it? And the feedback, you know, smithed it even more. And that was how Discover Mindful Eating was born. That's my first book. 
And when I was driving Fred back to the airport, I said, Fred, I think this needs more than just this book. I think this is bigger than just this book. And he said, well, what are you thinking? And I said, I think I want to start a nonprofit. And he goes, yeah, I have a publishing business. I can't do that with you. So Fred kind of tipped his hat and said, good luck, storm in the castle. Um, and um, it worked out that a dear friend of mine, Damacharini Amala, who was the director of my spiritual home, a Buddha center, and um, Dr. Jean Christella, the universe really aligned and we all got to get together. And I said, what do you think? And they said, I think this would be good for the world if we had the Center for Mindful Eating. Of course, we met, we were talking over a kitchen table, which seems so um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Jean reached out and kind of brought three people uh, from the Center. And I reached out and I brought in three people. And we shared this um, kind of love of, you know, developing a nonprofit. So, you know, the founding fathers of the Center for Mindful Eating, Dr. Jane Costella, uh, Ron Barge, who was a, a psychologist at Brown University, um, and Donald Altman, who's um, a terrific mindfulness, mindful eating teacher, author of The Art of the Inner Meal, mm -hmm. which for me, Fiona, was kind of my um, heart book. You know, that was yeah. the book that I read. And I was like, can I sleep with you? I love you so much. <laughs> In a totally non-creepy way, Donald. Exactly. He knows that, though. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. But I loved his work so much. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Ronica Batsnik, who was the author of um, the Zen, um, my, the, um, the Zen of Eating, yeah. um, she joined the center. Char Wilkins, who um, is a fabulous uh, advocate for mindful eating and also runs the uh, Mindful Eating Conscious Living Course. Um, I got a phone call from Jan Bays, and she's the author of uh, the book Mindful Eating. She called up and said, hey. Um, Gretchen Newmark, who is a dietitian out in the Washington State area, was... Uh, in the beginning stages, she was part of it. Molly Kellogg, a dietitian in the mm -hmm. Philly area, um, an expert, fantastic teacher around motivational interviewing. So all these people kind of came together and we would um, talk and, and try to identify a path for mindful eating. And, um, you know, like I said, it was really... It was really an amazing path. Damatrini Amala was there. Um, a physician by the name of Mark Blackwood was also on the board. Um, so really a diverse group of people, lots of different um, health backgrounds coming together to say the present moment is in fact where we can change. The present moment around food and eating is in fact the place that we really want to help people get to mm -hmm. and how do we do that how do we unpack all the stuff that we put in the present moment and it's usually the future mm. it's usually what am i going to get i'm going to eat this and then this is going to happen um or it's the past i'm eating this and i feel really bad about what i had to eat yesterday or an hour ago um we put a lot of the past and the and the future into the present moment and we miss the present moment mm -hmm. and that's 
just a huge source of suffering. Uh, it's, it's just a huge source of suffering because the present moment, it's all we have. Mm. Wow. I was just, I was just thinking how, how many dollars I would pay to have been a fly on the wall in those conversations. And, and just so you know, it, there was no alcohol at any of these meetings. So no wine to numb anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And did you meet in person or was it online? No, um, the internet was not reliable at that time. So yes, we would meet in person. Oh, and, wow. um, it was both loving and heart wrenching all at the same time because, yeah. mm -hmm. um, when you have hugely brilliant, talented people that are passionate coming together in one place, you have more ideas than the sand at the beach. Yes. You know, it's just yeah. hundreds of thousands of ideas, thousands of grains of sand. It was the same way. And, you know, there's, there's just so much that you can keep up with, with those. And it was a lot to triage. Um, what was a great idea? And of course, mindfulness uh, and mindful eating is becoming more and more popular, I think, as people really look. And they kind of do that mind mapping and saying, really, what are my options? Mm -hmm. uh, really, what can I do in this situation? Again, I think the realization is the present moment is in fact where you know change and choice exists mm. and if i'm struggling to get to the present moment i'm always going to struggle with change i'm always going to struggle with choice and what a beautiful intersection with motivational interviewing i, I suppose i've always seen mindfulness and mindful um, mindfulness practice and motivational interviewing to be such beautiful bedfellows yeah. Oh, so, so well said. And, um, so my most recent book, which is called the core concepts of mindful eating really was a journey into looking at that, those bedfellows. And, you know, my confession is, I think I'm very able around the mindful eating piece. And I think I'm an excellent teacher, but my counseling skills were always just good. You know, I had good counseling skills. Mm -hmm. I was an excellent teacher, though. Yes, and, yes. And there's a problem because when you start using motivational interviewing, this quality, you know, kind of like my, my, super, my super strength, you know, like what's your superhero strength or, yeah. you know, ability, I would say mine's teaching. Mm -hmm. And here I am in motivational interviewing, and they're like, yeah, you can't use that. Mm -hmm. It's a different style, isn't it? It's almost a different, it's a different style of presence, isn't it? And I, I really have to say that I kept telling myself, but I'm such a good teacher, this will be easy. Yeah, yeah. And, and motivational interviewing, um, because I've gone through kind of that whole process and right now, actually, I'm kind of at that last leg of submitting tapes and, um, you know, applying for to be part of the network of teachers. Um, oh, wow. The, so you're up to that stage of, is, is it Mint? Called Mint? Yes. Oh, is. wow. Oh, yeah. that's so great. 
so getting to that place of, you know, really going through the, the MI training and really falling into really accepting, I have to change. And I said, but I'm so good at teaching. And I had to let that go to become excellent at counseling. And I find that um, motivational interviewing, to me, the more I use it, the better I am at my mindfulness practice. The more I use it, the more I like my job. The more I use it, I think the more non-judgmental I am, Mm -hmm. the more compassionate. Um, I think my sessions are better. So I see no downsides to MI. um, And I see that it's so compatible. There's so many overlapping um, pieces with motivational interviewing and mindful eating. To me, like you said, they're just great bedfellows. It's it's amazing. So I'm, I can't encourage people enough um, to really consider digging in to MI. And I knew once I got a taste of it, I knew I was going to take it all the way. But again, I'm a two footer. So yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's a personality kind of quirk of mine. Yeah. Well, that's what we love about you. And I think, well, the reason why I am enamored by that is I relate wholeheartedly with that. I'm not a, I'm not a toe dipper either. I'm, I'm in or I'm out. And it's, and it's interesting if you think about in terms of, in terms of the, the middle way, (laughs) that sometimes, of course, being two foot in, you're like, uh oh, now I'm in. Now what? So it's um yes I agree it's it's a quirk and it's also um uh, I think you know it's an it's something that's really in, incredible about you that you're able to you know um, be in that space and 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 once you're in you know reflect okay right where to now so I'm interested in in the early days of TCME what was your vision um, did you imagine that it would have become the incredible success that it has been. Um, I think I had hoped um, that it would. Um, I I really had saw TCME as being a vehicle by which we could ease suffering. Yeah. And um, that's always the vision that I have is that we could ease suffering. Um, and I get very verklempt, you know, as I talk about the suffering that I see around food and eating. Um, it moves me to tears. I can't hide it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think mindfulness really can um, allow people to listen to that passion. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of dietitians that I'll meet with and they'll think, well, I feel like I have to go in this direction. I feel like I have to talk about weight or I feel like I have to talk about, you know, size or, you know, these things. And again, when we're in the present moment and you really are with your passion, with the thing that, that resonates with you, and you see how much suffering you create for yourself when you don't follow that passion. Yeah. Um, I have had, I would say, and I, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating, um, but every single person that I've interacted with, when they really are present with what's alive in them, um, they say to me, I know what I need to do. I need to change direction. This is not what 
resonates with me. Yeah. And that is how I think the Center for Mindful Eating can have a huge impact for dietitians is just to ease their suffering to say, you are empowered mm-hmm. to act and ease the suffering that you see in your life, in your work, and you are empowered and to act um, on that. You know, how can we support you? And I've had people come back and say things like, um, one of my students uh, brought the concepts of mindfulness and mindful eating to a women's shelter that um, she's involved in as a board director and teaching meditation to these um, women that are in an abusive relationship. And the board said, you know, why do you want to do this? These people need different things, you know, kind of seemingly different things in that. And she said, they need to know that they're loved and this will teach them that. Mm. Absolutely. And when, and when we are also able to release ourselves from the, the struggles of um, the struggles of what we learn in school. And then mm. as we, as we step out and we meet real life human beings, mm. living, breathing people who seek, um, who seek support from us. And so being able to, um, being able to ease the suffering of others, um, through engaging in in conversations and, and discourse amongst our not only amongst our profession but looking beyond beyond our profession so that we can understand what 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 hurts people and it can be quite uncomfortable can't it you know when when you realize that actually there are things that we have been taught to say and do that actually hurt people and that can be well I'm not sure about you, Megret, but that made me deeply uncomfortable. And for a while in my early years, I really avoided taking a look at that because I found it so confronting to think, oh my gosh, what I have um, learned. Not only that, but then also when, when I was recalling some conversations that I'd had with people or some quote unquote advice, you know, that I'd given, I just think, oh my gosh, compassion rain upon me now, younger dietitian, for those um for the the things that I didn't understand and didn't know, um, and that's the 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 wonderful gift of of mindfulness um, and you know non diet approaches and health at every size is that we can when we can um, learn what truly helps people to heal and to reconnect with themselves as whole human beings because we're we're already whole we're not broken we're already whole and coming from that place. Um, if we're able to sit with people in a compassionate, respectful way, then then we're truly, I don't know, I just, I just believe then that's when we're truly doing good in the world. Mm. And, and you just brought up so many different elements with that. You know, it's my mind was racing trying to connect all the dots because I think I'm recalling a podcast that you did with uh, Merit Boxer, I think in Life Unrestricted. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you talked about, you know, the experience of wanting to write out that apology to our patients and who we saw in our ignorance, in our youth, in our ignorance. And um, I remember hearing that and thinking, yep, I've been there. And then you just so beautifully wove in this whole aspect of self-compassion, which is connecting to the common humanity every 
um, green dietitian makes mistakes. That's why we're green. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to do things that we later think there's a better way because there is. As we get experience, we become more skillful. So, you know, I resonated with what you said. And I also really encourage dietitians who might be new in the field to get the supports. And um, like I said in the beginning, I was a health educator uh, before I was a dietitian. And one of the jobs I did was I worked uh, in HIV and I also worked in um, uh, like a hospice-like setting. So in, anyways, I, I worked with people that were dying. And it was part of my job was to have what we called supervision. And so I always had supervision. I always talked with somebody who was more skilled than me. And then I worked as an eating disorder dietitian. Once I became a dietitian, I did that for a number of years. And we always had supervision. Yeah. And so I find so many dietitians say, what's that? And I think to myself, what a blessing. I've never had a job where I didn't get supervision. I've never been in a position where I wasn't able to pull from those that I admire, uh, the resources of those that are more experienced for me. Um, I had a, a, a dietitian um, say to me at lunch um, just the other day, she said, you remember um, that comment you made about um, the hair sticking up on the back of your head? I went, yeah. And, and she said, remember how you said, always listen to that? I go, yeah. She goes, that was really good advice. And I said, and that came from Tina Fellis, who I got supervision from for five years wow. when I worked in eating disorders. And so we need the wise to guide us because that's their job. And we need to be around dietitians that we can be real with and say, Oh my gosh, I messed up. What do I do now? How do I, how do I write the ship and getting real, being honest, really looking to say, all right, where are the opportunities? You know, not, is there an opportunity? Where are the opportunities? We can always get better. And, and that's, that's support. That's where your uh, Facebook, you know, program is, is just helping dietitians get real and say, where do I get the help? And it's not just on Facebook though. We need more help than that. We need, we need so much supports to identify our passions to get support to follow those passions um, and not apologize for it. Yeah. Yep. That's so true. I think here in Australia, it's simply not part of the dietetic route of working. It's um, you may have some mentoring, which traditionally would be um, unpaid. Um, but more recently, we've got two uh, MI specialists here, um, 
Tara McGregor from Sydney and Laura Keeley from Perth, who are both um, psychotherapists specialising in, in motivational interviewing um, and dietitians. And they have actually just rewritten all our supervision guidelines. So we're, we are really hoping that, uh, because like you said, in eating disorders, it's actually really well accepted that you get supervision and that, that there is an exchange of some description and that that is a professional um, uh, a professional supportive space where you can bring yourself and your practice and like you my supervision is one of the most valuable things that I do because there is no other space where I can um, where I can raise uh, you know raise practice um, practice dilemmas or just things that are coming up for me and my supervisor is is an incredible um, reflective um, re reflective human being who can help me understand myself so that then I can be a, the best support I can possibly be when the people in front of me are really suffering so that we can be you know those stable ships um, when when things feel less than stable for, for the people that we're seeing yes yes and and i think again you, you know you offered so much in that in that summary there and the parts that really resonated for me um was really just talking about being the witness mm. and what does it take for us to be the witness and to not you know compassionately respond to that writing reflex yeah how do i witness your suffering and how do I get curious and support you to get curious and to find for yourself, you know, kind of cultivate that evocation, calling forth the solutions that are within you. Yeah. How do I do that? And, and that's MI, you know, and I, mm. I find for myself, um, you know, the spirit of MI is probably the best way that we could um, engage in non-judgment and you know i think that so often when we think about non-judgment we think well i'm not i'm you know i'm, 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 a, I'm a nice person <laughs> i'm i'm really very non-judgmental and i and i don't think that i have any problems with that and yet when i looked at you know that kind of concept of of how do you actually practice non-judgment um <laughs> In the book, The Core Concepts, I talk about how the spirit of MI actually is the best way to practice non-judgment. And that is talking about having a collaborative intention. I work with my clients and really focusing on accepting whatever they say. Yeah. Doing it with a compassion and also calling forth their own abilities, that call of evocation. Mm -hmm. And as we do those four things, as we embody that um, spirit of MI, we actually embody non-judgment. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And uh, it's very powerful stuff. So for the dietitians that, you know, they say, well, maybe I, I don't want to two foot into MI, but just really spending some time, and um, actually I have a, a CPE um, article coming out on Dietitian 411, and that should be out in September. Oh, great. is talking about kind of uh, this concept of mind mapping, 
um, in the book Core Concepts of Mindful Eating, I've simplified it into a thought compass. And one of the activities that that whole CPE is talking about is that aspect of how do we get to a non-judgmental stance, which, by the way, is the foundation of good counseling skills. Yes. So this is this is not something that just mindful eating people do. Anybody who is looking to provide good or excellent counseling skills has to assume a non-judgmental stance. How do I do that? And so really kind of engaging in this thought compass, you can pull forth and say, what are my tools? What are my resources? You know, where, where am I best able to practice this? What are the conditions that need to be you know, present for me to, to hold that non-judgmental space to be the witness? I'm not going to judge what I'm seeing. I'm just going to witness what I'm seeing non-judgmentally. How do I do that? Um, so that resource, uh, uh, Dietitian 411, uh, which is a great program, and it should be available in September uh, for you. Oh, that is so wonderful, Megret. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and we'll make sure to put that up on our Facebook group and also on the um, on our website as well so that people can, can access that. Um, speaking of non-judgment, prior to recording, we started chatting about something which I found very, very interesting. And if it's okay with you, um, I'd like to invite us to maybe go back there. And that is that as well as being a mindful eating specialist, um, you are also a diabetes specialist and we were talking about some of the difficulties that you um, that you've noticed in diabetes counseling and some of the um, some of the struggles that people that people are experiencing and I'm, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about that thank you so much that's a beautiful invitation um, so a little backstory um, uh, many years ago um, uh, Dr. Michelle May yep. said, I, I wrote this book um, called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. Would you read it? And I read it and I wrote it back and I said, oh my gosh, it's it's all of my binge eaters grown up. Um, they, this is all of my diabetes patients. They would get so much from this. And she said, well, I've really wanted to write a book kind of using this foundation, this Am I Hungry, Mindful Eating Cycle, and apply it to diabetes. So you know, 10 years ago, um, I really recognized that a lot of my patients with diabetes that were presenting had disordered eating. And fast forward to this year, um, the American Academy of Diabetes Educators and uh, the um, Diabetes Care and Education. So there's two different organizations, American Academy of Clinical, uh, American Academy of Diabetes Educators, AADE.org, if you guys want to go there. Um, and, um, and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they have a DPG called uh, DCE, Diabetes Care and Education. Two separate organizations asked me to write about eating disorders and diabetes care. And um, Fiona, I know you have written these peer-reviewed articles, but you put so much research in it. And in this process of writing these articles, I, I did all this research, and I'm absolutely puzzly convinced that dietitians are either, uh, it's very easy in traditional counseling, and the internet 
is definitely feeling this, but we're triggering these either unresolved or maybe semi-healed disordered eating patterns or eating disorder. And people are just in so much suffering around their food and eating when they're diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes. And as the beginning of this conversation started, how we have this mixed up message around what health is, the only diet they've ever been on is not a diet to eat a balanced meal or to get all their micro and macro nutrients. The only diet they've ever been on is a weight loss diet. So they have absolutely possibly no understanding of what balanced eating is. They understand what restriction is, but they don't understand what balanced eating is. And unfortunately, the messaging around diabetes is so confusing and people really misunderstand that a chronic illness does not have a cure. And again, that's from my HIV days where you know HIV is a chronic illness, diabetes is a chronic illness. You manage a chronic illness, you don't cure a chronic illness. And that's a very different mindset. And it's a very different way to look at a, at a, at a, a, a problem. Mm-hmm. And again, mindfulness lends itself to that. But what I learned in writing these peer-reviewed you know, journal articles was we need to spend more time and energy and resources and start having very high-level, powerful conversations about how dietitians and diabetes educators can help people eat a balanced meal without re-triggering these disordered eating patterns, which I think, you know, probably started 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Yes. So what you're, what you're really raising so clearly and beautifully is that um, a diagnosis like diabetes, it, it seems to, um, there seems to be a lot of fear-mongering associated with that diagnosis or fear-mongering around the threat of the diagnosis. Oh. So, yeah, because, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a small, this is a minor personal example, and that is my mum, who's in her mid-70s, has always been um, somebody who's been active, somebody who's eaten well, um, and in her early to mid-adult years, so when I was a child, was very enamoured by diet culture, and um, I, I, I remember cottage cheese and grapefruit, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and all those horrific um, type of behaviours around food. And she, after after an injury, actually, where she was, where she had to be very sedentary for a length of time, she she got back some unusual um, medical results. Um, and in that context, I was able to calm her down um, and to say, you know, this injury has meant that your body is, is 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 reacting a little differently at the moment. You know, you're usually active, and then you were. Um, quote unquote forced to be sedentary for a length of time so that your body could heal and in that context you know these results are not surprising but unfortunately her doctor had kind of scared her and said you're heading for diabetes and so my mum kind of hit the panic button and she said to me oh my gosh now I can't eat this and I can't do this and I can't do this and I and I I said to her mum Calm, calm down a sec because actually that's not true none of that is true and luckily you know as the conversation progressed we were able to have a really great um, discussion about the context in which these medical results were were um, received um, and that 
she didn't, but that's how she left. You know, and that is a very, it's actually a very small example um, of actually, yes, her past dieting was being re-triggered. Um, and I could see her, somebody who's usually very reasonable, actually, had really started to panic because of the words that her doctor had said. So it's, I think it's the, the, it seems as though it's the threat of that diagnosis as well as the actual diagnosis, as you're saying, if I'm understanding you, is setting off this chain of reactivity that um, that pulls people away from their intuitive selves and their ability to feed themselves faithfully as, um, um, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, her name is escaping me, um, which is the, the dietitian. Evelyn. Evelyn Tribbley. Evelyn Tribbley, thank you very much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Compassion rain upon me now. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll remember, we'll also add in there Alicia Reese as well. Elise yeah. Resch, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, to feed ourselves faithfully in the face of some pressure or some, or some stress. Um, so, how does this, how have you noticed in your practice this play out in the way people are? reacting to a diagnosis and and just like you said that that ability to be with the anxiety and the fear mm. and um that's the first skill set and to not try to compassionately respond by telling them what to do yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> you know you know really hear them out and say well this is important for you isn't it you don't want to have this you really want to take this seriously and when they say yes you know, well, what are you doing right now that's promoting health? Just a simple conversation. They'll say, well, I'm doing these three things. Or I was doing them, but I, you know, because of this injury, I can't do them now. You say, do you have any intention to, you know, to restart those? Or, you know, walk me through what your plans are to restart those. And, and, and as we talk with our clients and, and really say, I'm here to collaborate. I'm here to... Um, support um, and really offer you this compassion of saying this is a difficult place you had a health scare and now you have another health scare um, it's a place of empathy mm. and I'm here to help you and work cooperatively and collaboratively with you to identify those healthy behaviors that you want to rekindle it's not to scare you and to to trigger the unhealthy behaviors that you couldn't sustain because they're inherently unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're so spot on. I love what you just said about, um, you know, drawing out people's wisdom about how they can take care of themselves, particularly in the face of difficulty and how they can do that compassionately as well. And, and that requires us to be, compassionate with them without being drawn into advice giving <laughs> which is um something that i think dietitians find find hard to do and i was interested we had spoken previously about your thoughts on how this way of um when people are diagnosed with with something like diabetes that um somehow there's this perpetuation per, 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 perpetuating of stigma and uh, particularly around body stigma, weight stigma, disease stigma. So I'm wondering if um, you don't mind speaking a little to that. 
Oh, and then, so we're going to get into a conversation that, you know, I could, I could talk about this for, you know, five podcasts. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a very important thing. Um, blame is the most ineffective uh, motivational tool that we have. Yep. And shame stops change process. So uh, if for people that want to learn more about shame, uh, Skelly Skills has a great uh, CPE program that I did a video series, uh, a webinar program, three parts about shame and how shame is linked to body image, how shame is linked to depression, how shame is linked to food and eating. Uh, shame is really what we're driving at here. And shame stops the change process. So if you're a dietitian and you want your clients not to change, shame them. And you will be 100% effective. It's amazing at how effective shaming your clients are. You will never get them to change. You probably won't even get them to come back. How do you think, Magrat, that we can incite shame in another person and not even know it? Oh, and so in the core concepts, I talk about that. It can be a look. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, I think for myself, it's so complex. Mm-hmm. And that's where that non-judgment comes in. And that's where really getting those counseling skills from good to excellent that's where you're going to really turn around and say, I got this. Because how you would navigate um, shame and navigate around shame would probably be different than how I would do it. Um, you know, everybody has their little unique spin, but shame is a universal experience. Every single person listening to this has experienced shame. It's universal. Mm-hmm. And Brene Brown does a great job of saying we have to build connections. We've got to talk about shame. We've got to take it out of the shadows and put it right into the spotlight mm-hmm. and say, this diagnosis is really shaming for you, isn't it? Oh my gosh, I've been heavy my whole life. And you know, my doctor said I did it to myself. And that feels really uncomfortable for you, doesn't it? Well, my dad had diabetes and I knew this was coming and I, I tried, but I just couldn't stick with this restrictive diet. My friend told me about this other program, but I just, you know, I've got three kids and I work and, and right now in your life, adding this level of self-care isn't reasonable. Oh no, it's not. Mm. What is reasonable? Mm. Well, I could do this. That's terrific. Do you think that would help you? I do. I really do. Well, let's work on that. What a beautiful um, mini role play you just gave us just then. How precious. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much, Megret, for running us through that, you know, that very, that very brief process of being with somebody when they're, you know, really quite highly distressed and, and feeling in, I mean, as Brene calls it, a shame spiral. And I think what you've really raised is the idea that we can, that that shame is a felt experience and we may not, I don't know a dietitian who is not really lovely and is not deeply caring for the people who they come in contact with. I think that, you know, just to put that out there, 
and alongside that not but but alongside that there are there are ways that we can act and um, and behave that can incite shame in another person that is not our intention however I think one thing that that I've come to really understand particularly over the past couple of years is the phrase um, intention doesn't equal impact and to deeply understand the impact of a felt shame experience in another person really invites us to understand a lot more and to be a lot more self-reflective about um, even things like placement of furniture, um, you know, scales being visible in a room. A lot of people are very traumatized by being weighed. And so, uh, you know, it, it, that kind of that kind of experience is extremely important for us to understand because if we're aiming to help our clients be advocates for themselves and to say actually it's not okay for me to know my weight or actually I'm feeling very vulnerable today if I could not be weighed that would be great um, so and these are some really valuable I think roles that we can play where we're helping um, we're helping our clients and our patients to build these skills in advocacy and understanding um, how to best meet their needs in the face of difficulty. Mm, mm. You, you had brought up a couple of things about being weighed and uh, mm. it reminds me of, of a post that was put on um, mindful dietitian and, you know, kind of following that thread and it, it's a, it's a pretty, um, uh, perennial conversation that kind of comes up, you know, how do I navigate the weighing my client? And um, I really like using the thought compass. So I, I asked myself, what were my options around that? And I, I have a terrific coworker and we chatted about it. And so um, both she and I adopted blind weighing. So we've covered up the scale so our clients can't see what the weight is. And my clients will ask, well, why do you have it covered? I said, because you don't need to know. Yeah. And um, I said, are you comfortable with that? And they go, actually, I am. I'm really comfortable with it. I said, this number is not, it's really, it offers you no benefit. Um, your A1C is much more helpful for me. Your average blood sugars, frequency of hypoglycemia, truly understanding, you know, what's causing your highs and your lows in blood sugars. That's a really helpful data point for you. What you weigh, do you see any benefit? And they're like, nope, I'm good. I don't want to do it. I've, I have yet, and this is about a year of doing these blind weights. I've yet to have a client say, I really have to know what I weigh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not no one cares. It's such they a relief. Ugh. It but when I don't care, they don't care. You know, yes. So it starts from the top down. And I've had a couple of physicians say, I really want to know what their weight changes. And I'll ask them compassionately, what does that tell you? And they go, yeah, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because they know that I'm going to engage them to truly understand, to unpack that conversation. And for the dietitians that are not aware on this website, please, you know, Health at Every Size has terrific, terrific resources uh, to really help you unpack what does that mean 
And Marsha Hudno, who is the president of the Center for Mind Bleeding, uh, she has, I think you've interviewed her. She has different podcasts. Um, um, Green Mountain at Fox Runs has little um, seminars that dietitians and patients can, can really jump into that really address the issue of weight neutral. How can I be weight neutral? Yeah. If it's not important to me, it's not important to you. I recognize that for billing and compliance purposes, I may need to acquire this data. Um, but how do I minimize, how do I let it have the place it needs to have as far as importance goes? Okay. And that's a journey. Mm -hmm. So it's a journey. And like I said, I had this discussion with my coworker and I have the support of my institution to say, this is an acceptable practice for you. So uh, I, I put that caveat out there. Yeah. And as dietitians build their own level of confidence too, that we can start to have these conversations with our providers, with our medical providers, endocrinologists and other specialists who probably have just, they've been doing this probably for years and just looking, you know, playing the numbers game as I call it for years. So to have an opportunity to engage our providers also in conversations where we can actually start to disentangle our own practice from attachment to numbers. Because if we're attaching, like you said, if we're, if we're attached to numbers, our patients are going to be attached to numbers and going to see their, um, not only their health and well-being, but also worth and value. You know, I'm a better person. I'm doing better if my numbers are down um, and just to be able to see that in the context of a whole life in terms of you know stress we know can have significant effects on numbers um, and other you know lifestyle factors so yes oh my gosh migrate do you know what I could just talk to you for forever but what I would really like to bring us back to is some of your online training if you don't mind and and to really encourage everybody to look up your new book which is core concepts of mindful eating and there's a professional version of that too so I would highly highly recommend everybody to go check out Megret's new book because it is full of wisdom um, and that's the benefit of, of having a book such as Megret's is we benefit from your wisdom, Megret. So thank you so, so much for writing that. And tell us a little bit about your online training because I noticed that you um, had started advertising that. So um, what's happening with that? So the core concepts of mindful eating, um, there is just one version just to clarify and it is for professionals. Um, I have had some consumers purchase the book, but again, it is written for the dietitian or healthcare professional. Um, so that's the first thing. And it was modeled after I do a mindful eating retreat, which is a three day uh, retreat. And um, if you're looking for a retreat experience, um, it's a terrific opportunity. I donate my time to Area Loca Buddhist Retreat Center um, to support my spiritual home. So I don't get paid for this retreat. Um, so that's why cost-wise, it's uh, very affordable for people. And I've been doing that now for just a little bit shy of about, um, I think it's about seven years now, I've been offering that mindful eating retreat experience. And that experience um, I wanted to kind of bring it to professionals and say, this is how, this is the kind of the core concepts and really putting it out there. The first three ch chapters are what I call the roots of mindful eating. 
And those three routes are available in an ebook. You can download it for free, and it's on the megrit.com website. And then for people that want to purchase the book and do the activities on their own, you can pick it up for as little as $19 in an e-version. But if you wanted to get the CPEs for that and you want to do it like on demand because we're busy, um, Skelly Skills offers the professional um, CPE version. If you wanted to dive in deeper, if you're a two-footer like uh, Fiona and I, you can come and be with me for 20 hours. And wow. Oh, my gosh. What a treat. <laughs> it's, it's 20 hours so we meet 10 times for two hours and we go through the book uh, systematically and you will not become an MI expert but you will really understand the foundations of motivational interviewing by completing this program and my hope is is that I'll light the fire underneath you so you will go to Molly Kellogg's or um, Ellen's uh, work and I have on my website and also in the back of the book uh, dietitians that are mindful uh, motivational interviewing trainers um, so I highly recommend my new favorite uh, book right now is um, and I bring it with me it's kind of replaced Donald Altman's as my favorite um, but it's uh, my uh, motivational interviewing for nutrition and health professionals and um, it's, it's written by Don Clifford and Laura Curtis. So we're, we use in the core concepts of mindful eating, we bring to light these core concepts that we have, and then we lace in or plant that foundation of motivational interviewing. It's small group, so it's non-recorded, only eight students at a time and you get my full attention for those two hours. Um, we do something called a masterclass. So the second half of the program is where we're doing these counseling dialogues and these exchanges, and uh, people take turns um, leading the masterclass and guiding us through that process of how did it feel and uh, really using some MI concepts to kind of... Um, make it real, make it alive. Wow. That sounds absolutely, absolutely incredible. And there's a lot of, uh, I know that you're, um, that you're very aware of time zones and that you had responded to somebody, an Australian, who was very keen on doing your course and saying, hey, we might be able to work, make it work for time zones. And uh, so any Australians who are keen to do that course with, with Megresh, I, I, could not recommend it any more highly. Um, I've known Megret now for a number of years and she's one of my great heroes. Um, you know, and the fact that now there's, uh, it, it, it's deeper again with the motivational interviewing. Anybody who has done any training with, um, you know, in the States, either with Mel Molly Kellogg or, or Ellen or in um, Australia with Tara, then uh, you'll be well equipped to launch into this kind of training with, with Megret. So, oh my goodness, it's, oh my goodness, just so grateful to have your, your wisdom and your insight with us today, Megret, and, and thank you so, so much for being here. 
oh, what a delightful time I've had. I can't share with you enough how much fun this was. Yeah, I've written down a whole bunch of resources from from those um, from the the journal articles that you have mentioned, right through to the Skelly Skills, and also the. Um, the various things that people can download from your website. So do you mind just mentioning specifically where people can find you, please? Sure. So it's megrit.com is my website. And um, my email is just as easy. It's megrit at megrit.com. If you like Gmail, you can find me at megrit at gmail.com. So it's, it's easy to locate me. I'm not hard. Um, I'm so far the only migrant on the internet that I have found. Oh, wow. So even if you just type in my first name, you'll find me. Um, so I'm not, I'm not hard to locate. No, no, except geographically, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, one more plug, um, Please. for those of you who are, um, interested the center for mindful eating has a foundation series and i'm very excited i'm going to be presenting a two-part uh program so this will be a two-hour program and two parts to uh one hour each uh section on um nutrition education for mindful eating and um i was very excited i thought i had 90 minutes per section and they said no actually just 60 so oh, I, that's not what you want to hear <laughs> so i might have to do like part three and part four because i certainly have enough material to do a 10-part series on right this particular topic um right. but i i'm very excited and and that's going to happen uh, the 15th and the 22nd of August. It will also be recorded so you can um, purchase it and listen to it on demand yeah. as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and um, for anybody who wants to go to the Centre for Mindful Eating, it is www.thecentre, remembering that it's the US-based spelling of centre, c-e-n-t-e-r for mindfuleating.org and if you become a member it, it's actually extremely generous what you get um, not only can you uh, list yourself as a provider there but you but there are an amazing array of recorded webinars and newsletters and it's just so, in connect connecting with other people in in the field as well some incredible teachers um, that you wouldn't get access to any other way really so I encourage you to to connect with Center for, the Center for Mindful Eating and Migresh. And um, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you again. You're welcome. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.